Are you a lawyer who desires more freedom and flexibility in your work life? To be more available for your family, stop deferring those bucket list travel destinations until retirement, take care of yourself physically and mentally, or even just have more time for your other passions and priorities. What would it mean for your life if you could continue to practice law without sacrificing in any of these areas or sacrificing your income? I'm Kaylee Jacome, host of the Lawyer on Your Terms podcast. I run a six-figure virtual law practice working less than 25 hours a week. I'm a mom of two little ones and started my practice so I wouldn't have to choose between my vision of motherhood and my legal career. Your dreams and priorities may be different, but if you're curious about how to create a practice that is designed around your most important priorities in life, rather than always having to fit your life around your career, then you're in the right place. You, my friend, are more than just a lawyer, and you can lawyer on your own terms. Welcome to the Lawyer on Your Terms podcast. Let's dive into today's episode. Welcome back. Joining me today is Davina Frederick. She's an attorney and founder of Wealthy Woman Lawyer, which is an educational and coaching company that helps female law firm owners scale to seven figures and create personal wealth. She's also the author of a new book, The Wealthy Woman Lawyer's Guide to Building Systems and Systems-Driven Law Firm Business. Davina, can you, in your own words, tell us a little bit more about your journey? Yes, my journey's long, so we could probably take up the whole podcast talking about it, but I'll try to make it, I'll chunk it down. My career has been, has evolved in three phases. I started out, I got a degree in journalism, and I thought I was going to be a foreign correspondent, just traveling the world. And unfortunately, that dream didn't work. Maybe fortunately, that dream did not work out. I wound up getting married to my first husband and stay in Orlando. And there weren't a lot of options in town for journalists in Orlando. There's one newspaper, and that's really what I wanted to be as a newspaper reporter. So I wound up getting a career in marketing. My first job was as a technical writer for an engineering firm. And that evolved over the course of 15 years. I worked for a large, the largest law firm in Central Florida, and I worked uh, for an agency, all in this marketing role. Then first husband came and went, and I was really fortunate to meet and marry my husband, John, and we've been married now for 20 years. And he uh, really provided for me an opportunity to go and do whatever it is that I wanted to do. I feel like my first career evolved because of opportunity. It wasn't really a choice. And so then I sat down and said, what do I want to do? And I had a true to form. I had a matrix of all the different options and the pros and the cons. And so when I was in my late 30s, I decided to go to law school and I became a lawyer, graduated from law school at about the age of 42 and opened my own practice right out of law school. And it was my intention when I went to law school to open my own practice because I, my husband was an entrepreneur. I had very briefly, a business of my own that, that did not last very long in marketing, copywriting. And so it was my intention to do that from the beginning. And I did. I started my own law firm right out of law school in 2007. And for those who remember what happened, it was the end of 2007. So 2008, beginning of the recession. And it was a big issue in Florida because we had one of the largest markets for foreclosure after New York and California. So I turn that potential problem into an opportunity because I found out that 
there were a lot of big firms down in Miami who were taking on these foreclosure cases. And so I cold called the law firms and I said, can I be your local counsel in Central Florida? And that resulted in a few, a lot of no's and a few yeses. And that was enough to be my bread and butter money to really kick off my law firm in a really sustainable way while I learned how to be a lawyer. Because the one thing I didn't really think about is how difficult it would be to really be that baby lawyer trying to figure everything out on your own because I didn't feel like a baby. I was in my 40s and I had a lot of business experience, but that allowed me that kind of financial security piece to be able to something dependable that I didn't worry about the feast or famine. And I grew very quickly and I invited a friend of mine from law school to join me as a partner. She did that. And we scaled really quickly. We wound up with our like six employees and we had another attorney and we were doing all the things, all the right things. But I really discovered that I wasn't happy. There was, there were a lot of things off in my life at that time. And all of that pressure together caused me to just step away from the law firm because I said, uh, I'm, this isn't working. Like it wasn't just the law firm. It was other things. And I, didn't know how to handle it. And I didn't really have anybody to turn to. I didn't have any mentors. So I didn't know about coaching. I didn't really wasn't a thing then. So I just stepped away and did something else for a little while and then got, then started my second firm. And in that period of time, I did a lot, not only a lot of soul searching but, and a lot of therapy, but also I found coaches. I happened to find it by chance. A friend of mine who was a, an attorney invited me to a coaching event. And I was uh, blown away by it. It was a coaching event for women. It was not for lawyers. And it was all the lights and the music and the testimonials and all the things, like a religious event or something. And I got swept up in it and I signed up for it. And I wasn't at all prepared. I didn't even have a really good business idea other than another law firm. And I really wasn't sure what I wanted that to look like. So it was a little premature, but I invested in that. And I did start another law firm and that law firm was virtual. And it was before virtual was a thing. There weren't people doing, this is way before the pandemic. I had a lot of naysayers. I had people who said, I had one man said to me, your clients are going to like that. You can't do that. And at the time I had niched down to kind of estate planning. And as it turned out, my clients loved it because my clients were older people who didn't want to have to get in the car and drive. And when I say virtual, it was email and telephone. Like there weren't the tools that are available now to run a virtual business. Nobody used teleconferencing. If you did any sort of video conferencing, you were at a large law firm and there was a lot of expensive equipment involved. So small firms didn't do that back then. So that, yeah, that was that I did that. And then I just kept being so involved in coaching and hiring different coaches and learning more about business, learning more about myself. And so 10 years ago, I started a, a business, Defraudery Media Marketing is, is the name. And I started it with the intention of helping professional service businesses because I had been a business attorney as well, helping professional service businesses develop a strategy to grow their businesses. And very quickly, 
it, I wound up really attracting a lot of women lawyers because they wanted, they saw what I had done. They wanted to do it. They want to know how I did it. And so I rebranded a few years ago as wealthy woman lawyer to just call out very clearly to those women law firm owners and say, hey, here's a place for you, for somebody who can help you. The person I wish had been available to help me. I wish I had been that person for myself or I had somebody else be that person for me when I started. Yeah, absolutely. And I was going to ask back to that first law firm, two questions on that. First, what do you attribute the rapid growth to during your early years of being a new law firm owner? And do you think the rapid growth contributed to that burnout? Actually, I think it was the first part is the rapid growth. It really was what people would have seen as an obstacle I saw as an opportunity. So the it, it really was getting in on that foreclosure business and representing lenders. So there was an abundance of work for me, so much so that I began to expand pretty quickly by, and I did that by bringing in a friend who really wanted to go out on her own. And so she was a, a great fit, loved the real estate world and all of that. So that's how we, that's how we grew so fast is because the opportunity was there and we saw something that other people would see as, oh no, you're starting a law firm in a recession to there's a lot of opportunity in a recession. There were bankruptcy lawyers, foreclosure lawyers, real estate lawyers. There were a lot of people who had good opportunities during that time, but the key was being in the right place, right time and identifying them. I don't take all credit for thinking of that. It was just happened to be a lot of right time people looking out for me, having the right ideas, and then having the courage to make the calls because who cold calls people? So that part, I will take credit for that. I did get the courage because it's not what I would normally do. And I cold call people and that worked. I tell people all the time, you probably cannot do the exact same thing that I did because we're not in the same market. But I have seen all the time through the years with coaching other women law firm owners that Everybody has their unique opportunities and advantages, and it's really about keeping a keen eye out for what your unique opportunities and advantages are. And I've seen people not realize, like when we talked, I said, there's an opportunity, and they, they didn't realize it, that they see something as something they're not interested in. And then we sit and explore it a little bit more. We go, wait a minute, there's an opportunity for me to take on this work to learn something and to make money and it will help me get to the next thing that I want to get to. So that was really the key to the rapid growth. Plus I had a lot of, I did have a lot of mentors in terms of attorneys subject matter on subject matter, not on running the business, but I did have, having had a career for 15 years, one of which was working for a law firm, a large law firm. I had a lot of connections and a lot of opportunity to be around lawyers and learn that way. And so I think that helped me a lot as well. I had a large network being in marketing for 15 years. Now you ask about, did it, do you think it contributed to burnout? I really truthfully, there were a couple of things that contributed to that burned out feeling. One was my, and I see this a lot with people, my vision of what a lawyer was came from exposure to television to people who were really successful as lawyers, but I didn't see what goes on in the back end. I saw the front of that, or I saw TV lawyers, 
or I saw things around me. I had a, and also people in my life who said, you would make a great lawyer. Those kind of things influenced me over the years has led me down this path. So when I started actually practicing law and running a law practice, I, there was a disconnect in what I was doing and what I was experiencing. And so much of that has to do with practice areas as well and opposing counsel. I was, family law is really what I was uh, building the practice for myself around family law and estates, trust and estates. And so many of the family lawyers that I dealt with as opposing counsel were not nice people. (laughs) (laughs) Not not the kind of people you want to spend your day talking to. It was, there were some family lawyers who were great, who were mentors of mine, but I, I just didn't like it. I found that I was not, although I can make good arguments and I do make good arguments and I win, I didn't like the thought of every day being in that adversarial lifestyle. So for me, it really was that feeling of, wait a minute, do I want to be a lawyer? Do I want to be, what kind of lawyer? What are the options for lawyers? And I had been, my role models have been people who worked in big law, because that's where I met most of the lawyers I knew. And so between that, and then I had some things going on in my personal life at the time that piled on to the already stressful lifestyle. Because I was running the firm, I was the senior partner by far because my partner, although we graduated law school about the same time, she was much younger than I was and had a different ambition and a different sort of view of things. We're still friends today. We chose to preserve the friendship over the law firm. And so there were a number of things that contributed to it that I don't think it was just the work itself. Definitely when you are wearing a lot of hats and you're growing firm. And also I didn't have anybody who said to me, you don't have to do all the things. I thought about, I come from a family with a very strong work ethic. And I thought hard work is what it takes in life to be successful. And it wasn't until many years of coaching and really understanding what limiting beliefs are that I really came to understand that I always tell people, you can have it all, but you can't do it all. And I think I came from a place of you get wealthy or you get your goals by working hard. And while work is an element of it, it's not, my parents were, my grandparents were farmers and they were the hardest working people I've ever known. And they were born broke and they died broke. And So hard work is not the only ingredient, and it's certainly not the key ingredient to success. There's a lot more to it, and I didn't know that because I didn't have anybody. I came from hardworking parents who were middle class, who didn't, they weren't entrepreneurs, and they uh, didn't have college degrees, and they had, they created a wonderful life for them. And then I was the next generation that was able to take advantage of that. But there was a lot I didn't know. And so it was a combination of all of that, I think. So I don't think it was growing too fast as much as it was not not knowing myself well enough. Like it was a learning experience for me about who I was and what I wanted. A, a costly one, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> but I've heard, I've heard you talk abo- uh, before about pivoting and it's that it's okay to pivot. And 
I don't know, maybe your experience, I know you owned businesses prior to even the law firm, and maybe your experience as an entrepreneur gave you that confidence that it's okay to pivot because I experienced this myself and I know a lot of people have a fatalistic view of their career or I'm choosing my path and now this is my death march that I'm on. This is the path that I've chosen. And as you said, you see these examples of what it looks like to practice law, these um, prescribed paths. And when you choose one, it can feel like, all right, I'm on the moving sidewalk now. I'm on the moving sidewalk where I have barriers on both sides. The end of this sidewalk is retirement. And this is what I've chosen for myself. And that not seeing that option to pivot, if you do decide to do something else, you can feel like you're failing. But so that opportunity to start a second law firm and the things that you did differently, let's talk about that. So what were the learnings? And now you're pulling things back and looking at a blank slate and saying, how do I really want to intentionally create this business now? So what were what was that vision at the time? So first of all, I want to say this too about that sort of concept of pivoting. I had a very strong, when you work so hard and you invest so much in law school, the LSAT, law school, the bar, and we're taught in law school, at least I was, that being a lawyer is one of three learned professions, only three. There's theology and then medical profession and then being a lawyer. And so somehow we are in a profession that rises above filthy lucre. We are, we now have an identity as something special. And certainly we get treated differently by people when they find out that you're a lawyer. The challenge for me, especially when I went into coaching was how do I let go of that identity? Do I let go of that identity? And I had someone, it was a real struggle. And I see this a lot with people when they're, they're in a practice area and they can't conceive of changing to a different practice area, even though they hate the one they're in and they can't even realize that they can go actually learn it, learn a new practice area and shift, or they can start a new career and shift. But they're so tied to that identity that they've created and invested so much in that they're willing to sacrifice their happiness and their joy for that identity. And I had, it was my business partner actually said to me, at mid years after, but she said, you're still a lawyer. Nobody can take that away from you. You're still that person. You still have completely changed it the way you think. I'm still a licensed attorney and I still do some things, but it's not my primary way of making money. And so for me, that was really where a lot of the struggle was, this sort of identity. And I think it's really what led me to start another law firm is that I still felt like this is what I invested in. So this is what I needed to do. So I started that law firm um, out of the sense of maybe I'm what I'm not happy with is the way that I built the first one. So that, therefore, I'm going to build a new one and I'm going to do things a little bit differently. And what I did is a lot like what you talk about, which is focusing on, I call it keeping it small, keeping it all. And it's this idea that I'm going to create something that's more of a lifestyle business as opposed to an office with people. Because I thought, you know, that I would create this firm and I still found myself because of the way I'm built coming in before everybody else, leaving after everybody else. So it wasn't creating the freedom for me. I've since been able to help a lot of my clients create that freedom. They don't have the same mental blocks that I did at the time. 
Um, but my virtual business was that attempt to, and it worked, but still there was something missing for me, which is why I did something else. But that virtual firm was, first of all, I am very much a maverick. So one of the things I learned is that there are going to be always going to be people who are going to tell you that it's not going to work, that your idea stinks, people aren't going to like it. And it's just, I'm the kind of person that just makes me go watch me. And so I learned that there are a lot of people who may not like your vision of your, your idea about how to run a business, but you get to choose. You get to choose what kind of life you want. You get to choose the way you practice law. You get to choose the clients you take and the clients that you don't. You get to choose how you grow and who you hire to help you. Fortunately, now there are so many more tools to help automate your law firm and make it a lot easier to do that. But for me, I tried on a lifestyle law firm. And I, again, money was never the issue. I made the money because I had a lot of, I had a background in marketing. So I'm very good at generating business and referrals and all of that. But for me, it just came down to, it still wasn't the thing that, that I really wanted to do. And part of that was uh, getting older and being very sedentary. And practicing law involves a lot of sitting and writing and doing, unless you're a litigator. And then there's a lot of stress of going to court and all of that. I'd already right. done, been there and done that in yep. the Florida hot summers oh. in a wool, light wool suit in the 90 degree heat. Um, I'd done that. So I didn't want to do that anymore. And then my second business it was very, it was transactional and I did a lot of sitting and working. And I, I just don't want to, there's something else that I wanted. And I had been introduced to coaching. And what I really loved was the being surrounded with people who are visionaries, who have very um, optimistic attitude about life. I was lucky because I, I got some really good coaches along the way. And not every coach worked out great for me. There were some that, you know, but I learned something from every one of them. And I was just drawn to that. I was drawn to the helping nature of it. And it's a different way of helping than being a lawyer. And... I really love exploring our thinking and how we lock ourselves into things because we're afraid of looking at the way we think about something and shifting that. So that that led me, I started the coaching business about two years after I started the virtual firm and because I was just wanted to try it and see what that was like. And I had my virtual firm for about four years before I went fully into the coaching. I was working both of them. And the reason I decided is I just was, I was concerned that I would miss something if I were trying to do two businesses at once, as opposed to focus my energy fully on one or the other. And the one that called to me the most was the strategy, the law firm growth strategy and the business coaching aspect of it. Davina, I can really relate to that because that's the place that I'm at right now. I have my firm. I'm doing this. This is definitely a side, more of a, a passion business. But I recently had an associate moving toward partner on board who's my mother who moved um, out of being in-house counsel for 30 years and she joined my practice in May. So that has really changed things a lot and allowed me to be freed up to focus more on this. But I can definitely relate to that so much. 
And you and I had a conversation once about, speaking of growing your firm, about the fear that so many people have onboarding an associate. And I think there are a lot of similarities to the fear of going out on your own in the first place of it's all going to be on me. What if I'm not able to pay them their salary? Um, yeah. Can you speak to that? And it sounds like you didn't have those fears about going out initially, <laughs> but I'm sure you've talked to many people who have. And so can you speak to that fear of hiring your first associate, which is a very different pressure than hiring yeah. another type of team member? Yes. I And let me say this, because I do think a lot of times people don't aren't fully transparent and don't share the real and I was able to go out on my own after law school because I was very inspired by my husband, who was a 25-year entrepreneur, and he had his own successful business working for law firms and lawyers, and we met through that community. He's in technology. And his entrepreneurial sort of lifestyle, I was very drawn to. So he was a real inspiration to me. We were friends for many years before we became involved. And he, it was because of him, and I didn't have to worry about things back home, that I was able to take that risk. Now, it would not have been an unlimited amount of time of me taking that risk because I would not have been satisfied with that. But I did have that safety net and that cushion for some that, period of time. And that's important that, to point out and also give credit for on probably, I'm sure, a much smaller scale. Bless his heart. My husband is a federal employee. So at least that job's not going anywhere. Right. It, it, makes is, different. it makes a huge difference. I've interviewed women through the years who they're in it. They're single moms or they're single period and they don't have that cushion. So when you, one of the things I hear a lot are stories of women's success. And a lot of times I know the behind the scenes because I know the person. I've interviewed them or they've been a client. Many of the people that are well-known now have been clients of mine through the years. And I know, and I think to myself, like there's what people, what I always tell people is you don't know what goes on behind closed doors. So you don't know what advantages people have that you may not know about or what challenges they're dealing with that you don't know about. Because certainly that was a huge issue in me leaving my first practice was I had some things going on personally that really caused that me to make that decision. Um, but you asked me a question about the, what did you ask me? Oh, the fear of, <laughs> oh, yeah, the fear of hiring. Oh, the hiring. Now that yes, I, okay. I think about it, actually, I can see how there are parallels between that fear and going out on your own. But as you mentioned, depending on your personal situation, it can be a lot easier to say, okay, I know we're going to be able to pay the bills. Maybe I need to cut back on this, that, or the other. I had to make a certain amount. Yeah, I had to make a certain amount to cover my overhead. Right. Like he's not going to pay my, I'm going to pay for the business, but it's, I've got to cover the overhead. But I didn't have to worry about being on the street if I didn't. But and whereas so when now, you hire an associate, that's a little bit different because yeah, it is. now you're responsible yeah. for their salary. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that I love about the law for business model. And I know there are a lot of people out there. I know you're an advocate at Flappies. And one of the things that I tell a lot of my clients is when you're, oftentimes we think about our pocketbook today when we're making a decision for the future. And what we don't think about is that we're making an investment and there is an expected return on that investment. Now there's some risk involved as any investment. If you're investing in the stock market, you're investing in real estate, there's a risk. You're investing in your business, there's risk involved, but it should be an educated and calculated risk where you've done the math. 
So it's the same thing with hiring someone. When you're hiring a lawyer, especially if you have a billable hour model, we know that's a model that has worked for hundreds of years, that I'm going to hire this lawyer. I'm going to bill them out three times of what I'm paying them. So that's a return on my investment. And the return I'm going to get is coming down the line. And yeah, I'm, I'm going to have concern that I'm not going to be able to get enough business. But theoretically, it should free you up a little bit more so you can get do the work of getting more business. And it should not work out that way. Now, does it always work out that way for people? No. It depends on your strategy and whether you're good at implementing it and all the things, right? Also, I think there's a I think there's a, a right time and a right season for hiring a lawyer. And I think most solos that I've talked to, especially women law firm owners, wait too long past that time. And then suddenly they become overwhelmed and desperate and worried things are going to fall through the cracks. And if they would just take that leap of faith and sort of bet on themselves a little bit and say, and I had a client say this to a group of my other clients. She says, well, you're going to be there doing your thing. That person may come or go, and you're still going to keep doing your thing. You're not going to close up shop and stop being a lawyer and close down your law firm. And I think sometimes we focus on the terrible terribles that could possibly happen, and we never focus on the wonderfuls that could possibly happen if we do this thing. We're so, it is the brain's natural, what do they say? 85% of our thoughts are negative as human beings. So it's our natural inclination to go to the negative. And I think lawyers are trained to look out for all the things that can go wrong. And while that works great for us as a lawyer working for our clients, as a CEO or a business owner, you are, you're required to take risks. Because that's what being a business owner, a leader, and a CEO of a business is about. It's about taking calculated risks. Some pay off, some don't. I it is. I have rarely seen it. I don't think I've ever seen it. And for any clients I've worked with over the last decade, where they've hired and it hasn't. I've had it the hire and it hasn't worked out with that attorney. But then they turned around and hired another attorney. But they don't truly begin to know time freedom until they have other lawyers, plural, working for them. So there's some redundancy so they can be away from their business and not have to take their laptop with them. So it is really the key to complete freedom in your business to be able to have other lawyers because that's the piece. If you're the only lawyer, you can hire a whole bunch of VAs and a whole bunch of admins and a whole bunch of paralegals. But if you're the only lawyer then you can never fully step away. And so I think it is worth the risk to try it. And I think if you try it, you'll make it work because what I always say is like, we get so paralyzed thinking about, I have to make the right decision. And if I, especially perfectionists, high achieving women, we have to make the right, and we will stay paralyzed, not making, for fear of making the wrong decision, that we will make a decision Regardless. So what I always say to people is don't worry about making the right decision. Focus on making the decisions that you make right for you. So whatever decisions you make, ultimately, I made a lot of, you know, what people might think bad decisions. In hindsight, I look back, oh, I shouldn't have done this. I should have done that or whatever. I have regrets in my life and career as we all do. But for all of those decisions, I would not be where I am today doing work that I love, working with people I love. And my clients over the years have just gotten better and better 
and more inspirational. The work I do has gotten more meaningful and deeper and I've gotten better at it. All of those things. I would not be here, but for all of the things, all the decisions I made that maybe didn't go right. They still led me here, right? And I had to make them right for me. Yeah. And I think as you mentioned, on average, this is doesn't apply to everyone, but this is something that women tend to struggle with more than men. And I believe it was you who told the story, maybe it was or wasn't, but that much more often when you speak to a man who's launching a new practice, he has like, he's already hired his staff before day wow. one. And it's like, about that all the you, time. how do you know that this <laughs> yeah. is even going to work out for you, buddy? But, and then it's, as you said, just taking long, a lot longer for female attorneys to pull the trigger on hiring that first associate. And it reminds me of, there's this speaker, Christy Wright. She was part of the Dave Ramsey group. She was one of the Dave Ramsey yeah. personalities and recently went out on her own. But she used to tell the story of um, this study that was conducted with little boys and little girls, I think either preschool age or early elementary. And they found that on average, there was a huge difference between when a little boy made a mistake, he was much more likely to attribute it to something external going wrong. And the little girl was much more likely to attribute it to herself. And the little boy was much more likely to keep making the same mistake over and over again. And the little girls were much more likely to never do that thing that caused the mistake ever again. I just think it's very interesting. That's very powerful. Yeah, I, I've always, I've done reels and talked about this in my podcast. I've done a reel on it that was actually amusing to myself. I don't know if it was amusing to anybody else, but I said the one thing that men law firm owners have when they start out that women don't, law firm owners don't have is a secretary. And secretary is a very old fashioned word. Obviously, we don't use that anymore. But I have seen, I've worked with many women law firm owners over the years, and I have seen them hire everybody but an executive assistant. They don't even think about hiring an assistant just for themselves, a gatekeeper, somebody just to help them get things done. They'll hire, and in fact, I have an interesting little story for you about that very thing. One of my clients recently hired an executive assistant, and she hired a male, and he's highly educated. And she, but he has no experience. So he's Ivy League graduate, MBA, he has no experience. But she's hired him as an executive assistant because she has vision for him in the future. And there were a couple of interesting things that came out of the conversation with her. One is that two of her paralegals immediately asked if that assistant could do things for them. And I thought, wow, what, how presumptive, presumptuous that is, right? How... They just assume that their boss is on their equal level and they could ask their boss, can, hey, can we use your assistant? And I, and they would not do that if it were a man. And it was shocking to me. And I'm like, no, that's your assistant. You get to have your own. You're the one who started this firm, took all the risks, grew it. And you're the reason that it makes all the money it does, which is multi-seven figures. And I'm like, no. First of all, how I can't even believe that they had the audacity to ask. So some of that is women working with women culturally. You can't be better than me sort of thing. And it's, I'm not better than you, but I am your boss. I am the one who's taking all the risk and all that. So women are always taught this sort of battle against each other because we learn it from a very young age. So that was one thing. The other thing was, is my client came up with a different title for him besides executive assistant. And then after talking to me, she went back, changed it back. Her mother told her, 
No, that is an executive assistant. And but she felt, and I questioned her, and I said, "Why do you feel such discomfort with that?" And I said, "Let me ask you this: If it were a woman, would you have changed the title?" And she started laughing. She said, "No, I didn't. Even with a woman with that level of experience, that level of edge, or not, she he didn't have the experience, but the level of education, she would not have hesitated to call her an executive assistant." But for some reason, a man doesn't belong in the executive assistant secretary sort of role. So it was really fascinating to see her kind of go through that thought process. And it was entirely unconscious. It's so interesting how we have these even subconscious roles in our minds. Like I, I feel in my marriage that we're very equal. We divide our responsibilities. But yet my husband has this tendency to make me the secretary. And I'm like, that's not even my strong point. I need the secretary. You have the wrong girl. Good luck. (laughs) But and then also I was in a group, a Facebook group of lawyer moms and people were talking about hiring house managers. And I'm like, tell me more about this. And their job description, I'm like, you mean like a wife? Yes, I need one of those. I need one of those. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I remember in the late 90s, I was working for an ad agency and I was one of the It was my first job where I was actually the one that people were billing my work. Up until then, I had been in support roles, management roles, the support roles for the so engineers and lawyers and all that. And I was working in a support role as in marketing. But in the agency, I was the one, one of the ones who was bringing in the money from my talent as copywriter. And as an editor of our, I being the VP of our magazine division. And, but I would notice that I was, the oldest one there, my two bosses were a little bit younger than I was, two men. And I would notice though that all the guys would come to the meetings and none of them would have anything to write on or with. And I would always tell me, I'm like just prepared sort of person. I always come with something to write on and with. And I just said, I'm going to stop coming with something to write on and with. Because what happens is you automatically become the note taker because you're the only one with anything to take notes on. And I thought, what arrogance that they all show up at this meeting. But they didn't even know that they didn't even know what they didn't know. They didn't know that they should have come with something to write on and with. And so it's there is still culturally so much about how men and women are raised differently. We're starting to see a lot of changes. I always say I'm very encouraged by younger women all the all of the ways that younger women are striking out on their own and creating their own businesses and creating companies that reflect their values and the way they want the world to look. And that's really been my mission from the beginning with this is to help women be able to create a workplace that they would be happy to be working in and living in and being an employee in. Go out and create your own vision instead of working your uh, other people try to work on the traditional law firm from inside. I've just staked my flag on working on it from the outside and say, let's just let women start their own. Because most of these big law firms were started by two dudes who went to law school together. They graduated and they said, hey, bro, you want to start your own law firm? Sure. And they did. And now, two decades later, there are these venerated legacy people and if women do that now, that's what we're going to start. That's what we're going to be seeing. And we're already starting to see some of that from women who started doing that in the 80s and the 90s and into the 2000s. And so 
Uh, I want to see more of that. And it's also my place that I come from when I talk about money is a subject that women often don't talk about. They don't want to know their numbers. They don't want to talk about their numbers. And part of why I call it wealthy woman lawyer, I understand that what most people want is balance in their life. They want meaning, meaningful work. They want more time with their families. They want to be able to live their life now, not wait till they're old and gray to live their life and all of that. Money helps you do that. Awesome. Also, money helps you do that. And it also, it speaks to how women put a cap on their own ambition and potential. Because what the statistic is like only 1.7% of women owned businesses ever scale up over a million dollars or mm-hmm. to a million dollars, seven figures beyond. All the other businesses, and there's a small percent that only get over six figures, $100,000, Right. And I look at that and I go, as women lawyers, we should accept nothing less than a million dollar business, ultimately, right? Because we have the capability and the intelligence and the resources to do the thing, right? The education. And what would it be like if we all didn't cap or put limitations on our ability to do that? And I think oftentimes the limitation comes in and then we're trying to do it all ourselves. That's what high achieving women do. As opposed to say, I'm going to learn how to lead. If I can learn how to be a lawyer and be a litigator and be whatever, I can learn how to lead a million dollar, multi-million dollar business, an eight-figure business. Like I can do that. But I think a lot of times we cap our own ambition and we say, well, I don't really need that or I don't really want that. But there's a lot of, you could have a lot more impact in the world if you allow yourself to do that. And it's not going to be for everybody. I'm not saying everybody should do that. Well, what I'm doing is throwing out the challenge and saying, I've known women lawyers who've been lawyers for three, four decades in solo practice. And when they're done, they have nothing to sell because it's just them and, and their staff, right? They have no, they don't have fat retirement accounts. And then they're realizing that age really does matter. I got parents in their 80s. And although theoretically, they would love to still be working they haven't been able to. They don't have the kind of energy. They'll make dinner for us. And then the next day they got a nap all day. Like it's a reality of life that that people don't consider. And so during those years when you have all the energy and all the passion, why not use your intelligence and creativity and also your collaborative abilities to create something more? for yourself and for your family and for your legacy, for the future, for the world. A legacy law firm. Yeah. And I want to tie um, a few things that you've mentioned here today. You mentioned your grandparents that were, they were farmers and also these traditional law firms and big law where you have these legacy partners who are, are checked out, but they are still earning a lot of money from this business, even though they're probably not very involved in it anymore, which is very different from the solo, as you said, who comes to the end of of their career with no retirement and no business to sell. So for those who are at the stage in their journey where maybe they're still employed and they're thinking about going out on their own, or maybe they just have gone out newly, they have a new firm and they are in that place of a, of a solo right now, that lifestyle law firm. How do we begin to think of our law firm in the long term to to plan for those later years, to build wealth, and to have a more legacy mindset? What are the things that we can do maybe before we're 
ready to hire associates or how do you set things up so you can be ready in the future? So what I would say is I always ask people, do you, what's your vision for your law firm? Do you want to see your name on the door, 200 people working for you or 20 people working for you or whatever? Or do you want a lifestyle business? And part of that is the phase of your life. Like I see a lot of mothers of young children who are in a phase of their life where they want to work, but they want to be more available to their children. I've also seen that with women who have teenagers and they say, my teenagers really need me now more than they did when they were younger. So it's all about a choice of lifestyle this season and all the other factors in your life uh, that you have that may allow you to do that. So it's okay to change your mind and have different seasons and all of that kind of stuff. So I would say that first. And it's a much smaller pivot to be a solo <laughs> law firm owner and pivot to, right. oh, well, now we're going to go for seven figures. I'm going to do right. right. And also it can depend on you, right? So I can make a promise to a client and get the work done. I can make this promise. And one of the challenges of growing any sort of business is certainly this way in my business is I have to rely on other people and they disappoint me sometimes. And they put things out there and they, and I have to be the one that says, yeah, that was on me because it was my team. What I, what I really want to do is go, that person failed me. So there, there is a growth piece there that comes. But I would say this, if you want a lifestyle business and you never want to grow a big firm or a firm with some figures or hire other people, you just want to do things because that fits into your lifestyle. And there are a lot of people out there like that. Then there are other ways to create wealth. You you keep it small, you keep it all, and you take money out of the business and you invest it in other things, right? You invest it in an index fund, you buy stocks, you buy real estate, whatever it is that you want to do. There are ways to create wealth in all kinds of ways. What I argue for is just why not, if you're creating a law firm, why not make that an asset that you could sell or that could can continue to generate money when you don't want to work as much in it, right? You still own it. It's, you've hired people, they're generating money. So I think the being at the very beginning is uh, recognize that where you are is okay and it works. You know what I mean? It's okay to be where you are and not be there yet, but also just vow to be open-minded. And a I found that being a lifelong learner helps me. I'm always open to listening to people's thoughts and ideas. And sometimes I discard them because they don't work for me, but it doesn't mean it doesn't work for other people. I do believe in having a wealth. One of the things that I see women law firm owners do oftentimes is say, oh, I don't do math. That's why I became a lawyer. And I just can't stand it because I, listen, I was a star math student through the age of about 10, top of my class. And then when they started introducing letters into math, it all went downhill there for me. So I would never say I'm a math person, but Business math, I love because I love watching those dollars add up. Investing, I love that. And if you can understand, if you can get through law school and do all that it takes to understand legal concepts and go out in the world and practice law, you can understand business math and stop saying, I can't do math because that's just not true. And stop letting yourself off the hook on that because once you decide to own a business, whether you are solo or you're hiring other people, you're making commitments to people who count on the profitability and sustainability of that business, whether it's clients or employees, you made a commitment. So if you close up shop next week, those people you've contracted where they're going to be hurt, 
Also, the future clients who really need you and really need a great lawyer are going to be hurt. So you really have to make a commitment to understanding the business aspect, not just how we get clients to do the work, but how we actually make this a profitable, sustainable business that people can rely on with contracting with and your family can rely on. And then you can take the resources that you get from the business and you can make other types of investments. But just knowing that if anything happens to you, and I think that's something else that we often don't think about. And I have unfortunately met so many women through the years who had diagnoses that they weren't prepared for. And if you're so low, that really affects what you're doing. And they're scrambling around trying to come up with a a plan for it. So I just think being open to listening to other people's thoughts on it and really not being afraid to do the math. One of the things that I often do with my clients is I say, okay, what do you want? This is where I start. What do you want? And then they start telling me, well, I want to travel six times a year internationally. It's a big thing right now. I want to upgrade my house. I want to buy my mom a house. I want to pay for my kids' private school, pay for private education, pay for college, whatever it is. There's all Everybody's got dreams, right? What I do with them is then start putting dollar figures. Where do you want to go? Who do you want to go with? How much is that going to cost? We start putting dollar figures down. We put dollar figures down for retirement. People say, I'm not going to retire. And I understand the thought, like, I believe strongly in, if you watch the movie Blue Zone, they talk about longevity. And one of the things they talk about there is like just continuing to have purpose and meaning in your life well into your 90s and 100s, right? So you always have the people who live longer, have community and purpose and all of that. And so I believe in having purpose, but I also know that your energy level may change, your capabilities may change, your health may change, because I've seen that happen. And so I go through the math with people. And I say, let's say you retire at 65 and you live to 95 because women, we live longer. That's 30 years that you need to provide some sort of income besides social security. We have that, right? And that at $50,000 a year, not counting inflation, not counting taxes, whatever. Let's say $50,000 a year. That's $2.5 million that we have to have. And most people are like, $50,000? Are you kidding me? I got to have at least 100000 to live on. Now we double that. So while we, while it's ideal to say, I'm never going to retire. And they, there's a saying about lawyers. All lawyers never die. They die at their, they never die. They just, they never retire. They just die at their desk. Like, I, I've had saying. that happen with opposing counsel on a case once. And it was, yeah, it was, wow. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it was a little traumatic there, but it's accurate. I have some of my mentors have been men who worked into their, I had one mentor, he tried to retire and he says that they sucked me back in and it was supposed to be part-time and it became full-time again. And the second time he said, I'm quitting. I'm not retiring because I tried that and it didn't work. And he was in his eighties. And so I know that a lot, a lot of people like, I, so I just think to myself, like we have seasons and life. my season now is a lot different than the season was for me when I was in my thirties. And I'm now I'm in, I'm, narrowing and on 60 in the next couple of years. And so I look at things differently. And I think that every phase of our life, we look at that. So I just think keep an open mind because oftentimes we don't really, we don't know what life has in store for us and, and believe in yourself that you not only, 
can you understand business math or, or financial math or investing or whatever, but it is necessary that you take care of your own financial business. It is just as if you want to talk about self-care, talk about taking care of your financial business. That's number one. And I'm a little, I'm kind of old school feminist in that. And this sort of has worked to my detriment because I've seen other friends of mine get married to somebody who they never had to worry about money because their husband did all the investing or whatever. And, And I have always felt like I could never not work and depend on somebody else to support me. Even when I first married my husband, John, he said, you can quit your job, go do anything you want to do. I worked part-time as a writer for a little bit. And I was so uncomfortable with that concept that every day when he would come home, I would jump up and start like being busy because I couldn't stand the thought of him looking at me and going, I'm sitting here supporting this person who has no use and no purpose, right? There's no you're not contributing because I would feel that way if I were married to somebody who wasn't contributing equally, not always monetarily, but equally in our relationship, right? And so that is a, that's a belief that I have, right? But I've known, and I think that women oftentimes think, because women are the bearers of children, that we get a choice. And that is very true in our society. I can stay home and be a mom. And now I'm starting to see a lot of women lawyers who are the breadwinners and they're having husbands stay home with the kids and they're looking at it and going, wait a minute. But it's so funny to me because as you're talking about that and saying I, in that situation, you would have felt uncomfortable just being at home doing nothing. I have to admit, let's say I'm home with the kids one day. My husband walks in. It looks like a bomb went off. Don't say anything to me about it, right? But when he has a few days off of work and I and I come back, I'm like, you didn't make dinner. What did you even do? All day? What is what did you even do? Yeah, all day? Yeah. <laughs> we always had double standard. I, I'm, yeah. always told, I'm told people I'm very comfortable with my double standard. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah. I get that. But that is very, I'm very fortunate because I'm, I am married to somebody who we don't have children. So that changes our life and how we live our life. But we're very much equal partners. There is no boy things and girl things in terms of how we live our life and what we do. But it's it's because we're both kind of doers anyway. We're both ambitious and we like to be busy and we like to do things. We both like to work. So there's, there is that, that's my relationship and everybody's entitled to what their own kind of relationship or whatever. But I think to myself, yeah, it probably would have been much better if I had been content with getting married to somebody and then not worry about it. I'm just going to I don't want to speak on your behalf. This is just an inkling that I have. But if you if you had, let's say you were a trust fund baby, you were independently wealthy, it had nothing to do with a man. And so you money was no object. Would you be spending your time doing like random hobbies or would you be starting businesses anyway? Because that's I heard your podcast on this. And actually, (laughs) I I was sitting there like nodding my head. Totally, totally. I am. Are you going to be knitting? Are you going to be coaching? I absolutely love business. I love, I love being in conversation with people about business. I love helping people grow their businesses. So I very much am like you in that I'm not like when people say, "What do you do for fun?" My mother's always saying, "Did you do anything fun this week?" And I'm like, I I can't get her to understand that my work is fun to me. What I did for fun. 
as I had a wonderful conversation with Kaylee about business, how much more fun can you get? So coming up with ideas, it's my, it's the way I express myself creatively. So I started painting when I was in law school because I could, I'm a nat, I'm a writer. And after you go through law school, you're like, I don't want to look at a book. I don't want to write anything. So when I had breaks, I would paint. And I thought to myself, what did I love as a kid? Finger painting. So that's why I started painting. And I did that. And I was very much drawn to, I've sold paintings, right? And my paintings to me, I'm like, I'm not a great artist, right? But I did that for a while. But then I was like, I got to choose where I want my creative energy to go. And besides that, I got to pay for storage for paintings I don't get rid of. Of mine are huge. So I like you. You donate them as a tax I know I need to, right? <laughs> so I have, I've emptied out my, certainly, except when I am around my house and I've sold to a lot of people, but I haven't painted in a long time. Eventually that may be something I go back to, but my creative energy goes to my business, really, and my clients. So my creative energy is how can I come up with a new offering or how can I come up with a new marketing something? And that's where a lot of my creative energy goes. I, I was listening to your time about your husband learning guitar or something. And I was thinking, I have a guitar and I wanted to learn how to play guitar, but it has never been the driving priority for me. Now, I think a lot of that comes from the fact that I did not grow up with money. So it is definitely, I have money stories around that. So it's always been a driving factor of not wanting to be limited. I had parents who said, I'm not going to buy that because we don't have the money or we need to spend it on something else. And my mother has a lot of stories that she tells about around that. And so part of what has driven me in my life, I think, was growing up with that sort of lack and then saying, I don't want that to be me. So I think who I am is attributed to who they were and what they did. And they had a lot of money compared to where they came from. So when you have a my dad really grew up in what I call abject poverty. Really, truly, sometimes there was one thing on the table to eat and bread with it. And what was beans one night, it was greens another. That has colored who I am as a person. So I think part of my, and then also the time that I came up, women were just, when my dad was in the workforce and my mom, women were secretaries. They were teachers. They volunteered. My mother volunteered at school. It eventually led to working in a school. Um, my dad worked for the state and women were in support roles. So my parents have, bless their hearts, they have three very headstrong daughters and are college educated. Two of us have graduate degrees and, and we worked to get them. They didn't have the money for us to do that. We worked to get them. And that, that work ethic that they taught us, that drive that came from the opportunity that existed for us that did not exist for my mother. Yeah. In the eighties, women just started to be able to get jobs. And I remember my dad told me to take a typing course in college. So I would have something to fall back on if the whole journalism thing didn't work out. And at the time I thought this was absolutely horrible advice. And I was like, how dare you? Because I couldn't envision not being able to be whatever I wanted to be. But that was a gift that they gave me. And he, and it turned out to be great advice because I will tell you this, I hated typing at college, but 
my entire life has depended on the ability to type on a computer. So I like that really turned out to be great advice because I'm a very fast writer and typer on a computer. And that was because of my dad. But computers were just becoming a thing. They were still teaching typing classes when I was in my first couple of years of college. So it's that kind of thing that I think a lot of it's time and place, like opportunities that were afforded to me were not afforded to my mother, who, when she married my father, could not have a bank account or have a credit card in her own name. And people who've come after me, I see my nephews now who are in their 20s, they have so many tools and resources available to them that were not available to us. It's, yeah, and it's know, the time that it's also, there are people who come from absolutely nothing and they're truly self-made millionaires or multimillionaires. Right. But even if you had middle-class or lower middle-class upbringing, I was reflecting recently, I need to look back generations to see really how I am where I am and my children can be where they will be is not due to what I've built or even my parents, but it's going back to like my great grandparents who came here from Ireland or my grandfather who came here from Norway. And they were lower class, working class, very much so immigrants. And then my parents' generation was the first who could go to college. And that it may it makes it so much easier each generation. And with those right. changing times too, the challenges that our daughters will have, the next generation of women are completely different. Yeah, definitely. And the challenges sons will have as well because the landscape is changing and the roles of men and women it, it, it's really changing the way that we view gender roles right now we're starting to see that happen a lot and then of course all of the environmental issues that we're leaving as a legacy but i when people talk about generational wealth that is really what you're seeing and it's why you see so many people say i want generational wealth is because i came from this, I didn't have it, and I want my children to have more. And we see people doing that. Generational wealth is about more than money, though. It really is about opportunity. Right. It's about opportunity. When I hear generational wealth, I think very wealthy families, the Kennedys, the Rockefellers, generational wealth. But even when your family and in my family, it's these like incremental changes that open up opportunity that maybe you're not handed your real estate assets. You're not handed a trust fund. A college degree or a, a law school degree is a, now my parents didn't pay for that. I paid for that, but they put the seed in me that there was that opportunity for me. Right. And they helped me out my first couple of years. Right. So there was that the environment opportunity. Where? They created education was our top priority. So really, generational wealth is is also about teaching. I find with my nephews, because I don't have children, I only have my two nephews, they're twins, and they're about to turn 21. And with them, my gift to them, and, and I hope they'll one day realize that, is about is about education and knowledge. It's about educating them about money and educating them, because they're, they're making choices now that I didn't have a clue that I could have made when I was their age based on all the adults in their life, because bless them, they're, they're surrounded by a, a lot of adults with regrets, their parents and their aunts. And we're sitting here going, don't do this or whatever. But that education is going is to give them opportunity that was not available to us. That money education, not just their college education. So th- that's so much a generational wealth is knowledge. And, all, and also for me, I'm very much 
a believer in therapy, which is like an MBA in yourself, and really healing and passing along from that place of healing to people and supporting. But for me personally, there's no, I don't, I think in terms of me benefiting from previous generations and the decisions my parents made, and they weren't able to give me a lot of things that a lot of other people were able to give their children, but that's okay. They gave me the things I needed to be able to do what I want to do. And now I don't, I don't have children, so I don't think of those terms. I just think of like, how I'm going to live my best life. Okay. Yeah, Davina, when you were talking about your two nephews, they're really lucky to have you because I had an aunt who she didn't have any children and she and I had such a special relationship. I actually, she lived in Alaska for 30 years. I went up and I went to school in Alaska and I lived with her nice. in this little cabin and and we've traveled together. And there's something so special about an aunt relationship when your aunt doesn't have yeah. a child because my my kids, all of their our siblings have children now. And actually my little brother, he's he's not that little anymore. He's a police officer. But he when I my daughter was born, she was like the first grandchild. And then he unexpectedly had a child nine months later. And I'm so I love my niece, but it was like, oh, we missed that opportunity for you to be like just uncle. Because there's just something really special it's about that. It's special. It's very special. I'm so glad my sister, my youngest sister had at 35, she had two boys. And I said, I'm so glad you had twins because there is way too much love in this family for one baby. They would, <laughs> we would have smothered them to them. So we're able to spread it out among the two of them. And they're pretty, they're pretty spoiled. They get a lot of love and attention from all of us. So, I, and of course, I love it because it's great. I could be the wonderful aunt. And then she, my sister has to deal with all the problems. There. <laughs> and yeah. I can just give my two cents. But I do think that the other thing is that I look at my, the work I do in the world, and I often tell people this, is if you do meaningful work that is contributes to the planet and contributes to other people that is meaningful to you, you're also creating legacy that way. Because I think about all of the people I've been able to help who've then been able to provide better lives for their families or their employees. Oh, yeah. And their clients. And their client. Yeah. The I did an adoption, the only adoption case I ever did early in my career. And to this day, every Christmas, she sends me pictures and tells me all about his life and how all this and their families change over the years and everything. But you look at that. So whether you're doing legal work or you're doing coaching work or you're doing whatever kind of work you're doing, you just showing up being you is also a legacy because you're impacting people like that pedal in the water. You're impacting people in ways that you will never know. You're planting trees you'll never under which you'll never you'll ever sit kind of thing. And so it doesn't always have to be about being a parent, but that's a deeply meaningful experience for a lot of people. And there are a lot of people who come to me and say, I'm not that. I don't think about that. I want this. And so whatever it is, you should find community and feel fully supported in what you're doing because we all get to be who we want to be. And the amount of women that you've been able to impact through a wealthy women lawyer and all of the clients that they have, you're reaching more people through all of those women than you would have keeping your firm and scaling it out even more. Like the l- you know what's largest- interesting about that. What's interesting about that too, and I, I we probably need to end you and I've been talking. We could probably talk all afternoon. The but the interesting thing about that too is that I was thinking about impact because I'm always asking before I do anything. I get in a, a spiritual place and say, "Universe, help me 
get the message out for anybody who needs to hear it, that kind of thing. I just do these little rituals for myself. And I want to create an impact in the world. I want to help people be more prosperous and live better lives so they have more options in life. Because when you have more resources, you have more options. And that's my overarching goal. But what was very interesting to me is, so here we have a vision of our impact. Here's our vision of it. And then I start seeing all of the people who've been listeners of the podcast, who've been inspired by it to go and start a podcast or to go and coach people or to go and help people with their financial financial growth or to go and you see all these women lawyers who are not only serving clients as lawyers, but then they're going out and doing these other things. And many of them were guests on my podcast or many of them were people I've been in conversation with, some are clients. And you start to see the evolution of their lives and the choices they're making. And it's like you realize then there's a bigger vision for your impact in the world than what you think. And what, and you couldn't even estimate it. And I'm so, you couldn't even, we wouldn't even think of it, right? At the time, you don't think of it. You're doing your thing. You don't even think about it. And then suddenly you look around one day and you're like, wow, that's so interesting. And I think about that in terms of if you're an attorney and you're working the lives that you're impacting by the work you're doing. If you're a criminal defense attorney and you're defending somebody and they've got a child that's watching all of that go on, because I I, I had a client share a story one time about she watched her dad not being able to be home for Christmas and it made her want to be a judge and be in that seat of power. So there's all kinds of ways that the work we do when we show up and do it impacts people, right? And you would other right, generations that you could never even know. I heard a story. It wasn't even. It was someone telling a story about someone else. These this couple. Uh, they were both CPAs that lived in Poly and ran their CPA business together. And that was the first time I the concept of virtual work and as, as a professional right. entered my mind. And I tell that story all the time. I don't know their names. I'll never meet them. And they, so they've impacted you in a Usually. really significant way. Yeah. Yeah. And they have, you, they have no idea that they've done that, which is yes. amazing yeah. to think about that. We just got it really is. deep, Kaylee. Got yeah. really deep. <laughs> I mean, for people that want to go deeper with you, you have your own podcast, Wealthy Woman Lawyer. I'm sure a lot of the listeners of this show already listen, but I encourage you to tune into that. And then what offers do you have right now? How can people work with you? So the best way to check out is to go to my website, WealthyWomanLawyer.com. But I work with clients in a couple of different ways. I do private coaching still just because I love it so much. And that's where I work one-on-one with women law firm owners to help scale their firm over the million. And it's really for those who are in that mid to high six figures and they just can't seem to figure out like the keys to get over the million or they need the encouragement of the courage or the knowledge gap fills or whatever it is. That's how I did my private client work. But there are a lot of women who are solos. They're scaling the six-figure ladder and they are not at a point where they feel they can invest in private coaching. And so I created a program called Wealthy Woman Lawyer League. And in that program, it's it's you're getting group coaching with me and a small intimate group of other women lawyers. Plus, I've created all, all the training source materials that you need. The actual, I give you the framework that I basically teach my private clients. Only I do that in a membership portal and with private coach with a, a group coaching for me. Uh, right now on a weekly basis. That may not always be the case, but right now it's on a weekly basis. 
those are really the two ways to work with me. And you can find out information on both of those by going to my website. Also, I just encourage people like follow me on Instagram. And if you just want to like lurk and watch and see what I'm doing, that's a great way to do it. Follow me on Instagram. And uh, and of course, listen to the Wealth Woman Lawyer podcast because I had a lot of people tell me that they've just learned a lot from the interviews I've done on there or from the solo episodes. And so that is out there. That's a free resource people can go. And every time I do a podcast, if you're a podcast listener, add it to your rotation, right? Oh, yeah. And I podcast listener, you must do a lot. (laughs) I found you through your podcast. Sometimes you hear about someone, you come to their, but I found you just through searching through through the podcast app. So yeah, absolutely check that out. Thank you so much, Daily. Thank you so much, Davina. It was a pleasure to talk to you. I could talk to you all day. Thank you for taking the time out of yours to join us. I've I've really enjoyed it, Kaylee. Thanks for inviting me. That's all for today. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to me and really help us grow. If you would take a moment to go to your podcast app where you listen and leave us a review. If you know a lawyer who you think would enjoy this podcast, please take a screenshot of your favorite episode and send it to them or tag them in a post. And before we leave, I just want to remind you that you are more than just a lawyer and you can lawyer on your own terms. I'll see you next week.